Okay, well, uh, welcome to uh, another interview uh, held by EFSAS. This time we have uh, with us Dr. Juncal Fernandez Garaizabal. Um, for the purposes of pronunciation, I'm going to refer to you as Dr. Juncal uh, in, in, in this program. I I have no problem, no, no issues. Okay, uh, just to give you an introduction, of course, you're a program manager at the Counter Extremism Project and a co-founder of Parallel Networks, which is a non-profit organization dedicated to combating polarization, hate, and extremism. Um, Dr. Funkal has uh, gained professional experience researching conflicts, forced migrations, organized crime, and security. Her research has developed through collaboration in projects with institutions like Georgetown University, um, Comillas, ICADE in Madrid, the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and UNICEF. Um, she's also gained hands-on experience in peace building um, while being in Latin America and Africa where she provided psychosocial support to internally displaced populations and other victims of extremism and violence in post-conflict settings. And since 2019, she has been working to build the capacity of several countries, including the United States, the Republic of Maldives, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Spain, to effectively rehabilitate and reintegrate individuals returning from conflict areas and those convicted for extremism-related offenses. So, uh, Dr. Juncal, welcome. Thank you. Happy uh, to be here. It's it's a pleasure uh, to to host you and to interview you you as you know one of the very few experts on um on the maldives uh you don't found, find that many uh in in our uh, in our work so before we start with some uh to the point questions how come you um at some point of time became so involved with the maldives and not with its beauty or its tourism but mostly with extremism and terrorism Pure chance. <laughs> if you want to know the honest to God truth, that that was pure chance. Okay. Um. So, I I was indeed involved with uh, work at Parallel Networks and uh, contributing to uh, rehabilitation and reintegration projects of extremist defenders in the United States. When um, a colleague of mine in conjunction at CP in uh, in conjunction with the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, they applied for a grant. Um, in the Republic of Maldives, sponsored by uh, the State Department, the United States State Department. And uh, we got the grants, and that's how I ended up <laughs> managing the, the Maldives program. That is, it's not an exotic story. I didn't have a breakthrough moment. It was, honest to God, just pure chance. Okay, okay. Well, and now you have become one of the most foremost experts uh, on the country and, uh, and the issue of extremism over there. Um, so... You know, we, we, we have talked about this uh, a bit earlier in the in the when we were preparing for this interview. What I find, I would actually like to go a little bit into history um, because the terrorism problem in Maldives is not very old or is it very old? No, it's it's definitely not. It, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, and, you know, I, I think just to, to cut a long story pretty short, 
I would probably go back to uh, the ratification of the Constitution in 2007 and uh, the, demo the democratic election of uh, Mohammed Nasheed in, in 2008, because, you know, along with democracy, right, it also came the openness to greater religious expression, including a greater presence of more radical ideologies in the public space. And, well, these voices influenced Maldivian society in, in many ways. I mean, not just beyond expiring act, domestic acts of terror, but, you know, under the under the presidency of Abdullah Yameen during 2013 and 2018, the Maldives reportedly became the country with the highest number of foreign terrorist fighters per capita. Mm -hmm. And they still struggle with this problem. Yes, very much so. Um, a recent commentary from the police commissioner in Maldives said that in the country there are approximately uh, 1,400 people willing to die or kill for their ideology. Okay. And, um, you know, um, so much of, of red, because this is, Maldives is, is predominantly Muslim. So yes. when you talk about extremism, you're talking about Islamic extremism. Yes, sir. Um, and, and it's part of uh, South Asia. Now, when we when we look at South Asia, uh, the main problem of Islamic extremism originated in South Asia from basically um, the Wahhabi taught in the Arabian Peninsula, mm -hmm. the uh, madrasa set up in Pakistan, and the Deobandi school of thought originally in, in, in India. Mm -hmm. Is that also true? Does it is that true for Maldives as well, or does that yes. come from somewhere else? No, that is very much true in the Maldives during the Gayoom regime. Um, indeed, he had been educated uh, in Egypt under a more Muslim Brotherhood oriented uh, version of Islam, but towards the end of his regime, there was uh, an increased openness um, from Maldives to other countries, and a lot of students going to study overseas both to Saudi Arabia and to Pakistan. Okay, and the, the students went there for Islamic studies or? Sorry, yes, they did go for there too. Some of them went for Islamic studies, other just uh, went to study overseas because that's something that we can touch upon later um, in the conversation. Accessibility to higher education in Maldives is is limited, so there's a lot of students that do go overseas. So a lot of them did travel to Pakistan to to study, and uh, they received some religious education while they were there, or claimed to have received. I I think it's better choice of words to say they claimed to have received some religious education. Okay, and um, well, but did that go hand in hand with training, or was it just indoctrination? As far as I know, it just came with, uh, you know, learning. So that ideological component of, of you know, radicalization. I, I wouldn't, I can, I do not have enough information to say whether everybody that came back was um, ideologically radicalized to the point that they posed a violent threat. I, I do not have an assessment to, to say that. There's def definitely, um, you know, the ideological indoctrination. I do not know about military training. I Again, I cannot... There's not enough data that indicates that people that were overseas also received military training. There are, however, Maldivians who have 
you know, who traveled to Afghanistan, uh, who traveled to Pakistan and that were involved in violent incidents in Pakistan. But again, uh, no indication that they had been previously in Pakistan or that they had been ideologically radicalized in, in Pakistan or, or Saudi Arabia. No. Uh, but, but do you think that the, you know, the 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 most the, the the highest number of foreign fighters per capita is related to this outflux of Maldivians going for studies to Saudi Arabia and to Pakistan and coming back with an indoctrinated mindset. Uh, yes and no. It definitely plays a part. But uh, it was a discussion that I was having with with a colleague uh, recently. Right there's there's this twisted interpretation of of the faith, if you want to call it like that. There needs to be a series of underlying grievances or motivations, motives, reasons, whichever they may be, that attract you to that twisted interpretation of the faith and have and, and allow you to find answers in that twisted interpretation of the faith. So um, we were describing it more like uh, like a present. Right. There's if you have the box. um you have all these things inside and that would be the, the grievances, right? But it only is a present when you put the wrapping paper over it. And that's the, the role the ideology plays. It just provides, you know, it is the glue that sticks everything together. And and what were the reasons in the Maldives? I could go, <laughs> this, this, let me try it to, to the best of my abilities, because it is, um, it is a complex process. So, and, and I think it also came hand in hand with the openness and the democratization of the Maldives. And, and I'm not saying this in, in a bad way. It's just a series of events that led us to where we are today. Um, so um, let me start indeed with the openness of, of the Maldives to, um, to, you know, more Western influences and to actually the Maldives becoming a main tourist destination for people across the world. Because of course, with that, came an openness to a way of life that was not necessarily um, in line with a more traditional Maldivian way of life, not just, uh, you know, for islands being taken over for, for resorts and, and all of that, but, or, and, you know, people having to be removed from their traditional way of life, such as fishing, mm -hmm. but, you know, things like sex out of wedlock or, or homosexual couples coming to the country, you know, just to, to spend time together, which is something that for us in the West might be very normal, but does cause a clash for somebody with a more of a traditional mentality. So that, and with this progressive alleged economic development in the Maldives, yes, from a, from a GDP perspective, because of course, tourism accounts for most of the GDP in the country, but uh, that gap so to say between the the haves and haves nots have it has increased very much in the Maldives and um to that gap you need to add the fact that well the the Maldives is basically an archipelago country it's composed of little islands that are often dispersed from one another and most of the resources are centralized in the capital area in Male so um everything that relates to getting an appropriate delivery of services whether for example mental health or um, physical health, um, higher education, you need to go to, uh, to the Mala area, which has become increasingly expensive for local salaries, increasingly crowded, which does not contribute to anybody's well-being. And, you know, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult for everybody to, to hold a job that allows them to pay rent, especially among young population, right, where they have to share an apartment 
among several of them uh, just to make ends meet and be able to to get an education. And then if you're struggling, there's very little access to resources like like mental health um, for single mothers, for example, the um, stipend that they get from the government is really low. So there's a lot of socioeconomic issues in the Maldives um, that, yeah, make I think would make um, certain ideologies particularly appealing, especially when speaking about social justice. And it was during the time of 2007, 2008, that these people then, because of these reasons, went outside for education? Or was that earlier? That that started before. That started before. During 2007, 2008 was the first time that there was any conversations about extremism, extremism actually being a problem in the Maldives. And that's when, uh, you know, Maldivian citizens actually took part in in terrorist attacks in, in, in Pakistan, for example, 2008, there's claims that uh, Maldivian citizens were involved in the Mumbai attacks. So that period of time is when, well, the chicken came home to roost, if you want to call it like that. It's when there was finally an, an opening to say, well, there we do have a problem. And then, of course, some people that had traveled to Pakistan ended up in, in, in Afghanistan, too, um, with under, under, you know, support the Taliban regime. So it's definitely not a new, not a new issue that comes from, um, you know, myriad of underlying problems. But it, but it's also not something which started like in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan in the eighties. It's much later. Yes, I mean you do have to take into consideration that the Maldives was essentially a dictatorship for thirty years, mm -hmm. until two thousand seven. So, uh, you know, during as as with every dictatorship, there's a big period of time where it's a very closed environment and as i said gradually the Maldives started open up opening up to saudi arabia to pakistan and that you could say planted the seed but mm. i don't think you can point it out as the only single cause because no, yeah, yeah. Of, these, uh, of these causes but why do you think that still despite this problem despite having the highest number per capita of foreign fighters why is it that Maldives doesn't get the attention, even whether it's positive or negative? Uh, but I, when you when you go through the UN designated terrorist list, there's not you know there's not many Maldivian organizations on it or individuals. You don't see so much of debate about it or around it in the press or in in the West. Is it because it's strategically unimportant? Or is it because it the 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 highest number of extremists per capita in Maldives do not pose a threat to you know countries around them because they it it is an island. I mean, it is an island country, but um, and of course you need to take into consideration that when we speak about the highest foreign number, uh, the highest number of foreign fighters per capita, the. The country of the Maldives doesn't have a high number of population, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. You caught me right there because I, I forgot to review my statistics on that. But the total number doesn't account. I mean, it's it sounds like a lot because it is a lot, the highest number of, of foreign fighters per capita. But in total numbers, it, the number is, is not particularly high. And um, but even I in big numbers, it is around, what, 1,500 or so? Oh no! So there's approximately so there's a report from uh, December two thousand fifteen that um, mentioned that there were approximately 
only 200 people that had, um, oh, no, yeah, 200 people that had uh, attempted to, to leave the Maldives. And mm -hmm. the success rate of arrival to Iraq and Syria had been approximately 40%. So as I say, the numbers total are not um, particularly high with regards to other areas of the world, for example, Central Asia, where, you know, the number of, of, of the volume of people in, in total numbers is is very high. And um, also, I think... Yes, I just sorry. got a message saying that it need, Maldives is around just a bit over half a million uh, people there living in Maldives. Thank you. That's where I was going to go, but I didn't revise it this morning and I don't like talking. I mean, express them with certainty, things that I'm not certain on, and this is one of them. But if you, if you still compare that to, for example, a country like India, where it's 1.4 billion, uh, and if you put the Muslim population, if you talk about Islamic radicalism, uh, around 240 million, and even there, the people who have joined ISIS is just 200. So in that comparison, it's still very, very huge. Yes. Yes, I know. But that's why I say, in, in, in especially in, in relative terms, right, it is... It is huge to say that, and not in a good way, that you're the country with, with most foreign fighters per capita. In total numbers, of course, uh, in comparison, it's it's very, very little. I mean, just to give an example, there's, uh, you know, just recently, uh, total numbers in, in Central Asia for some countries are about 800 foreign fighters, right? So, you know, that are going to be, that are planned on, on being returned. And of course, 200 in comparison to Maldives is is nothing. <laughs> I mean, and so I, I don't know if that's um, what doesn't attract enough attention from the international community with regards to Maldives. But I do have to say that every time I say I'm going to work for Maldives, people are very confused. I absolutely confuse us to the kind of work that you do. How is that related? How is that related to Maldives anyway? <laughs> and you have to explain the whole thing. And people just don't understand how, um, you know, well, you have this beautiful country, the beautiful islands, the beautiful everything. What would, in what world would you want to leave that paradise? And it's like, well, if you you scratch beyond the surface, as everywhere, you know, there there are its complications. It's not as idyllic as it seems. And um, I think understanding that dynamic in the Maldives is a little bit complicated. Plus the fact that indeed, I mean, geographically, the Maldives is isolated and Maldivian citizens have not been particularly active when it comes to participating in, in international incidents, except in Pakistan, as I say, 2007-2008, Mumbai attacks, 2008. It's more of a, of a domestic thing when, when it has come to Maldivians taking the lead or perpetrating attacks. It has been mostly uh, domestic. Okay, and but, but do you think that because of this problem, it has become geostrategically more important? <laughs> I mean, I think it's important, like, uh, addressing the, the issue of radicalization of foreign fighters. I mean, it's it's not because of Maldives and because I have a particular, you know, devotion to, towards that, to that country by now. But um, to think that because the Maldives is geographically isolated, um, that means that nobody should pay attention to the problem going on, especially right in a where where I mean it's because it's not just foreign fighters. There's a huge, um, there's a huge issue with radicalization in Maldivian prisons, for example, right outside prisons. There's issues with radicalization, and to think that because 
the Maldives is, is geographically isolated, that will not pose a problem going forward. I, I think it's a mistake. Like there's, there's no indications, for example, that uh, there will be another caliphate right uh, at least in the in the near in the near future uh, except for what's going on in 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 africa right now but you wouldn't properly call it an islamic state but what if it does happen what if it does happen you know or what if maldivian citizens decide to join uh west africa and east africa right so um i think it's a mistake to to actually consider that because it is geographically isolated that in a world you know in this globalized world that it would be impossible for you know, Maldivian citizens in this case to travel overseas and join uh, a different struggle, and I mean, and this has been seen by fighters in in other contexts, like for example, in Chechnya, right? So people that came back um, from war, from conflict, and had nothing. There, there weren't proper rehabilitation and reintegration programs for them, so to say. They did end up joining other conflicts. So there's no reason to think or to believe that the same wouldn't happen in Maldives. Okay. Well, now you you talked about reintegrating uh, the people who come uh, back, and you of course work. Yes. I'm of course I'm, I'm I might ask a maybe a politically incorrect uh, question. Um, no problem. To what lengths do you think that society should go to reintegrate extremist people? Oof. Um, to uh, you're muted. I just lost you for a second, but please go on. Oh, no worries. I think we're gonna have to cut a little bit here. Yeah. But let me to make it easier. Let me just start answering your question from from the beginning, because I was I was indeed. I mean, I I wouldn't call it a politically incorrect question. I would definitely call it a difficult one. Because uh, you do have to struggle between, you know, security. Do these people actually pose a threat um, just when they return after they leave prison or not? Because there's not, not enough evidence to prosecute them and they directly undergo programming that may exist in the country or posed directly in their communities. So do these individuals actually pose a risk? Then I think is also, you know, the moral debate of, you know, what exactly what you were asking do they deserve a second chance and who gets to decide who deserves a second chance but of course then the issue i mean then you get to understand the complexity of the issue right and and i'm going to give a very simple example women and children you know returning from iraq and syria i'm not even going to get into you know the security aspect of, of adult returnees. That's that's not the question. But um, children, they are not to blame for their parents' actions, mm -hmm. right? They were either taken by their parents at a very young age or they were, you know, born overseas. So again, no actual accountability, no legal accountability for these children. Mm -hmm. So you bring them back and what's how do you ensure that the process is done well enough that they won't be resentful, right? Or de or they develop maladaptive mechanisms to cope with all the pain of having been overseas, of in this case being separated from their parents, 
mm-hmm. right? If we imagine their par- their father has either died or is in prison in, in Syria and their mother might still be in the camps or she comes back and she's incarcerated. And then what happens with the child? Are they put in the care of the state? Because the state considers that the family was, you know, played a significant role in the uh, radicalization of, of the child's parents and therefore they they are a risk factor for the kid or do you place them with a family that um the, the child may have no relationship whatsoever with because they've spent most of their life overseas so again that's um from the moral debate is who I, deserves- I, 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 I would get it from the children if, if you talk about the children but Let's say there's an extremist or, you know. But what happens to adult parents, right, also no. affects the well-being of the child. That's why I say it's it's a very complex when you, I mean, as I say, it's it's moral, it's a security. It's also taking into consideration what, and then this, I guess, is an, uh, is an offshoot of the morality component of it. Um, in a lot of countries, there's people that never joined a terrorist organization and that may also be struggling, right? And then you have the grievances and comments like I have gotten in various contexts, which is, okay, so do I have to go on to become a terrorist in order for my government to provide me with some sort of assistance? So, you do know... You, would you, would, do you understand there are some Western politicians or Western parties in Europe, because they're also dealing with this problem, who have maybe not expressed it as vocally as I'm going to put it, but, uh, you know, they've actually wished that these terrorists or the extremists who were returning would have been, you know, the society would have been better off if they had just died there. Yes. Do you, do you, do you understand that argument? Do you agree with it? I don't, I understand where that comes from. Mm-hmm. I am not sure... I fully agree with it. I, I actually don't. I mean, because I, I do understand, trust me, that there's people that are completely unremorseful and they still believe that what they did is is the correct thing. Um, but again, I I do believe I do believe in in people changing. I do believe if one is able to address whatever caused the person to radicalize in the first place. And as I, as we explained earlier, it is a myriad of things that can contribute to pushing a person down, down that pathway. Um, I understand there's people that, again, there's people that might be completely irredeemable and me coming from, from a country like Spain, we, we've seen this with members of, of Euskaritas, Katasuna, ETA, right? Mm-hmm. There's members that still to this day are completely unremorseful and, I I mean I wouldn't go as far as to say they wouldn't hesitate to pick up again again I I'm going to be cautious with that statement but you know what I mean mm-hmm. but there's others who have expressed remorse and that has taken time and that has taken work with the person uh, not just at an individual level but at a community level we had attempts in Spain for example at restorative justice approaches with with former members members of the organization and victims that didn't go well but anyway it took time. It really did take time. So just um, taking somebody who just returned and, and not even giving them the opportunity to actually amend their ways, if you want to call it like that. I know that sounds too much of a, of a hippie discourse, but what I'm trying to say is giving them the opportunity to at least, um, you know, contra- I mean, be 
law-abiding citizens once again. Like, no, I, I, I don't think. Go ahead. Law-abiding. Um, I want to. I want to pick up on that. Is that indeed you need to reintegrate? I also believe that at some point of time, people can do something terrible, but people can change. Um, but there's there's of course a process in the middle, which is law taking its course. Mm-hmm. When these when these extremists return, how do you actually prove whether they were involved, and then whether they will be punished for it, whether they were involved in in decapitating people, in 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 turning women into sex slaves, in doing you know horrible crimes against humanity, uh, so how, how do we how do we balance that? I mean, I'm not part of the investigative procedures that each country has, so I, I rely on their intelligence services and <laughs> gathering all the necessary evidence to prosecute people. But um, it's difficult because you know countries like Britain, France, Belgium. Are, mm-hmm. uh, are coping with this problem that, mm-hmm. you know, we have no idea what happened in Syria. But, I mean, then it's up to you to amend. I mean, as I say, I'm not I'm not here as, as, a, yeah. as a policymaker to tell individual countries what to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's why is there, I mean, there's maybe just enough evidence to prosecute somebody would be that they joined a terrorist group because it was, you know, late 2014, ISIS was already declared an international terrorist group. So maybe just that is sufficient argument to prosecute somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that let that legal process in each country plus the investigations um, and what their respective constitutions and laws say about this, uh, you know, that's not up to me to decide. I do understand the security component of it. Like, how do you know that this person is not a threat? Like, even if we did not find enough evidence, mm-hmm. you know, to prosecute this person, it, even if the person decided to join the group before it was declared an international terrorist organization, because I'm sure there's cases like that where people left before it was declared an, uh, a terrorist group. Do they pose a threat to others mm-hmm. when they come back? So where are they ideologically and is there a chance that they're going to commit violence? That is, I think, the bottom line of all of this. Apart from the fact that, of course, law needs to take its its course. And if somebody commits a crime, you know, please go ahead and do it and, and incarcerate them. It's just and I know this is also going to be an unpopular opinion, right? But we have and done pretty well in a lot of countries right have worked towards the rehabilitation and and reintegration of, of people who have also committed horrible crimes uh there's murderers i mean not here in the united states where i'm at right now because there's there's life sentence but for example in european countries there's no such thing as a life sentence people commit murders and don't serve a life sentence people there's rapists in prison that will you know come out to society one day true there's there's pedophiles that will you know come back to society so i understand the the concern but right it's it's and i and this is a very unpopular opinion and i'm aware there's resources to um try and understand and address the criminogenic needs of other different kinds of of people who have committed criminal offenses 
that are also very, very horrible. Mm -hmm. And we are throwing our hands up in the air. And I understand, listen, if, if, if a pedophile recidivates, for example, the effects are not nearly half as bad as if somebody decides to, like what happened in the London Bridge attacks, right? Somebody underwent programming, they feigned their remorse and they feigned everything. And then on their way to a conference where they were going to speak about their process and their redeem, their redemption process, they ended up stabbing people and killing people. So from from that regard, I, I, I do understand where where the concern comes from, but I don't think it's an insurmountable task. I really don't. And there's been resources dedicated to, as I was saying, addressing the criminogenic needs of of different people, and this is not insurmountable. And is the I Maldives, don't think it is. And is the Maldives working? You know, if you cannot say that, then of course tell me that. But is the is the Maldives working with European countries, uh, U.S., India, where they have also dealt with this problem? Are they working together on this? I, I cannot speak for their collaborations with, with other countries. I mean, I, I, I just mentioned in, earlier in the interview how I ended up working in the Maldives was the U United States uh, State Department uh, grant. So yes, there are bilateral relations existing with different countries to ensure that the Maldives in this case has the necessary capacity to you know rehabilitate and reintegrate um, people coming, coming home from you know the battlefield. So would you would you would you call Maldives a vulnerable country at the moment? Oof. In comparison to who? That's that's always my question. Yes, there, I I mean, yes, I think the Maldives right now is is a very polarized country, and uh, you need to to be there to see it. Right? It's. Um, from from a social standpoint, uh, from a religious standpoint, it's a country that um, is becoming increasingly polarized, and I think that's always um, that always makes a country vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, just to go a little bit towards uh, you know uh, the geopolitical, geostrategic issue in mm -hmm. this regard, um, the Maldives have have has become a growing uh, destination for. Chinese interest and Chinese foreign direct yes. investment. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that indeed to tap into the vulnerability of the country or the polarization of the country? Because there has, of course, been this tussle even in the democratic process of people fighting elections who are either perceived as being pro-China or anti-China. I don't think in this case the the Chinese play a role um, so much in 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 politics, at least not overtly. Um, the interest of of Maldives, right? I think it's just a key strategic spot in in the middle of the, of, of the you know the Indian Ocean, and it's it's a gateway from South and Southeast Asia, you know, to to Africa, to West. East Africa, sorry. <laughs> so East, sometimes I confuse my my East and my West. <laughs> uh, so to East Africa. And um, as with a lot of other countries, uh, China is making investments uh, through infrastructure. And of course, that causes some sort of influence uh, at a political level. Mm -hmm. And um, 
though it's it's more of a geostrategic interest from the uh, economic standpoint rather than you know in this case with regards to um to terrorism and security that's what i would say however the um, development that the country that, that the maldives in this case is currently undergoing with help and assistance from the Chinese, I think will only cause the issues that we were talking about earlier, the centralization of resources, the overcrowdedness of, of the Mali area and the little um, availability for services and whatnot. I think that is going to to increase certain problems. Yes, I really think so. And, and like you said, it is, of course, gaining a larger strategic significance within the Indian Ocean. Um, you know your analysis, of course. Has has the Maldives sought to hedge between China, India, the Quad, uh, or do you see any clear alignment? Uh, you know where they stand. I don't think there's there's a clear alignment. Truth be told, I think that it's pretty split, right, with regards to people who um, are more pro-China and economic development, others that are more pro-United States. But publicly, I don't think that uh, I, I think it's countries like India, China, and the United States that are more vocal about their interests in the Maldives and make moves towards, you know, the Maldives, depending on their interests than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And um, in that regard, I, I, I do understand the position of the Maldivian government of, of not taking any clear sides um, insofar that, you know, there's the, the, the Chinese are willing to to invest in uh, development, which is something that I agree the Maldives need, yeah. needs. How it has done, that's a different story, but I do believe that the, the country does need it. And for example, countries like the United States who can you know, address other concerns of the Maldivian government, in this case, security issues. So, you know. So, um, but do you think that the, um, you know, because because this is a problem of foreign fighters, which which we basically started with, is a, is a problem which the Euro Europe has dealt with, uh, the US to a lesser extent maybe has also dealt with, um, and other countries are dealing with it. Um, do you think there is a need, um, you know, there's a bigger need for these countries to assist the Maldives or, uh, you know, help whether that's with know-how, knowledge, expertise, or funds? Do, do, do you think that needs to be increased? Uh, ironically enough, when it comes to uh, foreign fighters, right? Um, no, but, I mean, I'm going to put it very bluntly, but and then I'll develop. Nobody knows what we're doing. Listen, hear me out. Mm -hmm. It is It is such a new phenomenon, right? I mean, ISIS was the terrorist group that inspired more adherence Right than any other group in history, and now they're coming back to their countries of origin. Um, and I think, I mean, of course, there's countries in Europe that have deal, dealt with terrorism before. Spain, Ireland, you know. So it's not it's not an unknown phenomenon. What is unknown and what and what is new to everybody is the fact that these people traveled overseas in mass numbers, mm -hmm. and now what do you do with them? It's not that you can strip them of their nationality, at least not in all cases, because they're not dual citizenship, dual citizens of two countries. So you you have two options. You either leave them in the camps in Iraq, in, in northeast Syria, in this case, which I think causes a greater security concern than than bringing them back to their countries of origin, 
or as I say, you bring you bring them back. However, yes, I think the countries like the Maldives do need that assistance. Um, and I think, I mean, financial assistance, I mean, I think it needs to be, always be very justified to what uh, the money is, is being spent. And yes, the, the know-how. I think there's there's a lot that can be applied of what we have learned so far with regards to dealing with terrorism in general. It's just claiming that somebody has all the answers to the re rehabilitation and reintegration process of, of extremist, uh, of, of foreign fighters and their families. I don't think that's accurate. And, and, I, and I, I wouldn't say anybody has the right answers, especially because of the fact that this is a long-term process. It's not that because they return and they undergo six months to one year of programming, for example, that we can guarantee that five years down the road, something happens. They have a, there's a life crisis of, of whatever nature and they recidivate. And I don't mean recidivate necessarily that they go and plant a bomb or go and stab people, mm -hmm. but, you know, they may find solace again in extremist ideologies or they may develop, I don't know, in the case of children, you know, um, substance use and abuse issues, right? Because they're unable to to cope with their circumstances. So as I say, know-how, yes, but with everything that we know so far, I mean, whether it's how you conduct investigations, how to ensure that, you know, there's no plotting in prisons, right? Uh, for people who may be radicalized or who are convicted for extremist offenses. Uh, when it comes to rehabilitation and reintegration, there's a lot that can be learned from DDR programming in Africa. There's a lot that can be learned from, you know, just the reintegration, rehabilitation of, of violent offenders in general, how that's done, what areas need to be touched upon to, to reduce that chance of, of which, recidivism. Which does leave, leave us with one more problem, is that in the beginning, of course, you said that there are many socioeconomic reasons as well why people did this. Yes. So now you rehabilitate them while still the socioeconomic environment is probably not 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 only the same, but maybe even worse, uh, especially when you just mentioned, you know, for example, indeed, uh, you know, that, for example, Chinese investments are probably going to exacerbate the problem even more. So how do you on a socioeconomic level uh, make a more conducive environment to tackle this? That is that is an incredibly complicated question, and that's something that I grapple with a lot, mm -hmm. a lot, um, because it's not just providing employment to people who come back. It's something that I breezed past earlier, which is what about the local population? They may be struggling with unemployment, too. Mm -hmm. So. How do you do this? Right. Um, and <laughs> I could I got I was recently in Kyrgyzstan also for, for rehabilitation and then a reintegration project. And um, one of the things that we were discussing is how do we make sure, you know, that we can contribute to rehabilitation and reintegration and everybody's speaking about employment and how do you provide that to a person? Because they were saying, oh, I don't know, For in the case of women, you know, just get them sewing machines. And I was thinking to myself, but what if they don't want a sewing machine? First of all. Second, if you buy everybody a sewing machine, then the market's going to be saturated. <laughs> there's no space for them either. And then why are you, and grievance, local grievances, why are you providing 
people, you know, who, independent of what the law says, I consider they have committed an offense, right? So I don't necessarily see them in a good light and you're helping them, but not helping me. Um, and so that took me to a conversation that I had in the Maldives um, recently. So yes, uh, and again, that taps into the financial assistance that you're speaking about, for example, development programs, right? Long-term development programs. That, for example, take the Maldives, and I'm pulling this from a real conversation that I had while there. If you're able to create um, some sort of internship program that, and let me give an example as a hotel, as a resort, because they have tons of them there. Like you, you as an admin assistant, or, you know, you get an internship with the hotel. I don't know what's wrong with my camera. Sorry. Uh, you get an internship with, you know, hotel or resort X, let's call it whatever, with the possibility of employment. At least there's a stage there where you've earned your, you know, it's not directly putting people in employment programs. At least there's a work prior that can help mitigate that stigma. But what if you made that program accessible to particularly vulnerable population in general, whether it be people with disabilities, whether yeah. it be single mothers who are struggling to make ends meet. Why not other people coming home from prison who might have difficulties finding employment, right? So it is possible, as I say, it's complex and it requires, you know, not the short-term addressing and managing immediate threats kind of thing. It's more, then it's when we start talking about long-term sustainable development programs. Mm -hmm. So it is... You know, it's there. The, the question is there. It's just very complicated. And we're talking about two different things. Yes, of course. I mean, it's we're talking about two different, three different things. But of course, one one um, is based on the other. And, you know, they, they both. Exactly. No, no, no. They go together. One transitions into the other. But mm -hmm. how exactly do you do this? It's difficult. Okay, so I'm um, you know coming to the end of this, uh, but I want to still ask you one thing: is of course that you know you just mentioned that there have been you know there have been people or there have been Maldivians uh, who were um, who, who were part of the Mumbai attack in 2008. Um, what you've seen in the region, of course, with the fall of ISIS, is that you know many of these people joined new groups, old groups, made new groups. And suddenly change their objectives, change their, you know, um, their loyalties. Um, do you think um, there are still men, you know, people from the Maldives who have done that in that region? Um, so, so are there people from the Maldives who are now part of ISKP or, you know, other organizations in the Afpak region, or or have or you know or have they all returned and and known that? this is not going to work. I don't think they have all returned. I know this is going to work. <laughs> and I can guarantee you. Um, I, as I say, the, the official numbers with regards to this, I, I think do not always reflect the reality mm -hmm. of, of the foreign fighter phenomenon in Maldives. Um, so as I say, I can't, um, I can't, I, I don't have enough information to accurately answer that question. Um, even if I would revise videos or whatever, most of them are old. So I don't know what happened to that to those people. Are they still 
overseas? Are they not? Are they in prison? Did they die? You know, there's there's a lot of information that I'm sure the the Maldivian intelligence services who are, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about. Um, they probably have that information. I do not, and it's and and even if I did, I I don't think I I'm not sure I could make that public. But being honest with you, 100%, I do not have you know a certainty with regards to numbers a certainty with regards to how many of them have died, how many of them are currently incarcerated in, in Syria, how many of them actually went on to join to join a group. I, that's so something... Think it is quite likely that, God forbid, we might, um, you know, there might be another terrorist attack in the region where people from the Maldives would be involved. Yes. I mean, and it's not that uncommon. When I, my first trip, my first in-person trip to Maldives was... In May 2021, mm -hmm. and um, they tried to murder um, former President Nasheed yeah. while I was there. Um, they blew up a motorcycle. Luckily, nothing happened. But um, yeah, so domestic. Uh, and as I was saying earlier, in an age of globalization, especially people who might have self-returned yeah. to Maldives and that are, and you know they have not been prosecuted the fact i mean it's very easy for them for them to go overseas it's very easy for them to reconnect with new groups that are forming in maldives as i say the people that attempted the murder of um uh former president nasheed are currently in prison but there's a lot of other people that are radicalizing in maldives or there might be small cells in maldives that they can join so um yeah do you think this problem has actually affected one of the main sources of income of Maldives, which is tourism? No. So that's still as Yes. Well. And I, I tell you, I, I fly frequently because of work and then, nope, there is no such thing. And I mean, the the Sultan Park attacks in 2007, the, the recent attack against Nasheed, they all happened in Mali. And um, I guess that if, for those who haven't been in Maldives, they don't necessarily un cannot necessarily picture what I'm about to say, but Mali, the city of Mali, is overcrowded. It's a, a small, small place and then very far away from all of the resorts. Yeah, of course. So it's two absolutely different worlds. It's it's you know, unless somebody would actually go on to a resort and God forbid do something, the resorts and the true Maldives, so to say, are, are different worlds. So I don't think I, I again going back to the comments of people like the kind of work that you do, what what on earth are you doing in the Maldives? Mm -hmm. It's because there's such cognitive dissonance between the the world of the resorts that definitely exists and this other true Maldives that not a lot of people know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there, and this is my last question, and then I'm going to wrap up, but do you think there is still people who go on these excursions towards Saudi Arabia, Pakistan? Yes, but it's been more formalized. Um, it's been more formalized. Um, so there's um, in the Maldives, there's a the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, and a lot of their uh, their employees have received an education in Saudi Arabia. Um and they've studied for, for seven years, including Arabic and the, the Holy Quran. So there is. It's just now when it comes to 
the public Islam or the official Islamic narrative in the country, it does fall under the Ministry of Islamic Affairs and everything related to the religious curriculum in, in schools and whatnot. There is a government body that regulates this. How do it's they just... check what they are learning when they go to uh, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan? Because their curriculum is, of course, theirs. Yes, uh, I, I'm assuming there must be some, some sort of agreements between both governments, because as I say, members of the or workers under the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, most of them have all studied in, in Saudi Arabia. Checking, um, there's a better system of check and balances now. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, when they come back to, to the Maldives, of course, as I say, they, they're part of a ministry that, of course, works in conjunction with other government bodies and everything that is put in place is regulated from you know from a central step from from the central government that does not imply that as you know that other people may interpret their religion differently but when it comes to the official uh discourse surrounding religion there is a centralized discourse that comes from the central government and that is overseen of course by different government actors well uh dr Hunkau, uh Thank you very much. I think it, it it has been a very, very interesting interview because, you know, we have, we have touched upon the moral issues, the legal issues, but also we have, you know, concluded that even if we tackle all of those, we're still left with the socioeconomic issues yes. uh, in the country, which, of course, even, you know, well-established welfare states in Europe have. I was going to say, exactly. I was going to say. You know, the, because the, most of the people from Brussels who went there came from backgrounds which are neglected. So there you also have this socioeconomic issue. Um, yeah, that is always, of course, going to remain. Um, and hopefully Maldives being you know, dealing with a lesser population uh, would be able to tackle that more. But then again, you have said that Malé is, you know, the concentration of it. So maybe... Um, you know, the government in Mali or, or the, 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 the people in Maldives need to come up with a more encompassing, you know, project. Um, I guess, as, as I say, I think it's um, when we speak about rehabilitation and reintegration of, of, of firm fighters and their families, it's, it's a very complex issue because it's very new. And I think each setting has its complications. Um, we're speaking about the Maldives in this case, which is a country that is still, um, you know, economically developing um but yet for example from my experience i think it would be easier for women and children that are especially adult women in this case that are not legally prosecuted to integrate in a country where 100 percent of the population is muslim mm. and you know seeing a woman in a niqab on the street is not uncommon and i think with regards to stigma or feeling at home, it would be a lot easier than, for example, in a country like France, when, you know, even just your your religious attire can be a problem and, and can already cause certain stigma. So mm -hmm. as I say, uh, this is a very, very complex issue that requires understanding and analyzing each context independently, because, you know, social welfare programs are great in Europe. I'm not saying that, but we struggle with other issues, which in this case is discrimination and stigmatization, and which is not... You know, being it's an issue that is being further fostered by people with the discourse that you were mentioning earlier that they would be better off if they died in the battlefield. Which, of course, that doesn't just stigmatize, uh, you know, people that left, but whole communities in general, and that's very, very dangerous. 
So, you know, very complex issue. <laughs> and of course, we need to be, <laughs> or at least the state or we need to have different moral standards than uh, than than people who were terrorists, of course, you know. So uh, that is one of the first foundations of, 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 of our, uh, you know, rule-based, uh, law-based society. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. Dukhunkal, thank you very much for uh, for thank joining you. us and, and taking taking your time to uh, to discuss such an such an interesting issue. Thank and you. I've left out uh, many questions. Um, Probably we can sit together again whenever you want. Yes. <laughs> I'll we, be more than happy. We should do this. Uh, we should do this again soon. Absolutely. Just well, you know where to find me. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And and again, my apologies for being so late. Thank you very much. Hi, bye. <laughs> Thank you. Have a lovely rest of your day. Bye.